morning, Arbor. You may be seated. Passionate worship. I listening to that song again, as I did in the first service, obviously. Uh, I'm glad we have people with skill sets who can hit all those high notes. I, <laughs> you're glad I'm not up here, trust me. But it does allow us to continue in worship and enter in. I think it's fascinating how, you know, on any, on any Sunday morning, where are you all going to find the points of attachment? Will it be in the message? Will it be in a lyric from a song? Will it be in just listening to the music? Will it be in greeting one another? Will it be in someone who uh, puts their hand on your shoulder and prays for you and listens to a, an area of brokenness or need in your life? And, and, and any one of those or all of those can be part of what makes it a great Sunday to be at Arbor, and you never know what the Holy Spirit delivery system will be. I think that's fabulous. Well, we continue today in our series on disciples. Bob gave us a great start last week, and we asked the question, why are we, why are we having this series anyway? Because it's our mission, it's our purpose as a church at Arbor, and so reminds you every Sunday when you walk in, or anytime you're in this building, right on the backside of that wall behind you is where that is, is branded, make disciples together. That disciple being the pupil, the follower, the learner, and that, that all-encompassing really lifelong mentorship of discipleship where we take his yoke upon us and that journey doesn't end today. Today's just another step in that journey of making disciples. Five-week series and the goal is for those of us that have the opportunity to bring the message, find one of the disciples, isolate a trait in their life that is a killer trait about that disciple but also then would, Lord willing, be projected into the, the, the DNA of Arbor Church and the identity of Arbor Church, but also each individual who wants to be a disciple and that passionate follower of Christ. Last week, Bob talked about John. Next week, Jake is going to talk about Andrew. And today, I will talk about Peter. Let me give you a few introductory comments about Peter. Uh, our friendly fisherman. Probably a fisherman with an attitude, though. Fishermen in the ancient Near East and the, the, the Galilean shoreline, they have been described as follows. They are gruff, shabbily dressed, vile, typically vulgar language, and unkept. Does that sound like a fisherman, or does that just sound like you when you get out of bed in the morning? <laughs> you might be a good fisherman, too. I don't know. Peter was married. There's an account in Scripture of Jesus coming to his house where his mother-in-law has a fever and Jesus heals his mother-in-law. Probably most impressive for me, one of the most impressive things for me, is that here is a man who flat out left his business, his career, that's what you got to think. Would you, would you walk away from Microsoft? Would you walk away from Amazon? Would you walk away from your job at the auto repair place? Would you walk away from your job at FedEx because you heard Jesus come through, say a few things to you, and concludes with follow me, and you think, I just punched out my last day. I'm, I'm so done here. This is what he did. This, was his, this is how he, he made his livelihood. 
and he walked away from it to follow the master. Stunning. He is a man who is bold. He is a man who we know from accounts in Scripture. He's very outspoken as well. It reminds me, those traits, boldness and being very outspoken, reminds me of somebody else. Now, in a moment, there's going to be an image on the screen. When you recognize this logo, tell me who this represents. And the image on the screen, and go. I heard it over here. Who said Richard Sherman? Okay? The uh, children's ministry is going to wash your car for the next month. (laughs) That's your door prize. You okay with that, Luca? Okay. We don't know if there will be any scratches or what your car will look like at the end. But congratulations, you have answered correctly. All right, let me show you another image and tell me who this is. Ready, go. (laughs) I didn't hear a name. I heard laughter. I didn't hear a name. Number 25, once again, Richard Sherman. With some, some of you, accurately, manipulated his mouth. You know, there have been many times I've think, Richard, just use your mouth for oxygen that you need in your lungs and for eating, embracing your wife, kissing your wife. Okay, that's, you don't need to use it for a lot of other purposes than that. All right, how about this uh, next image? What does this remind you of? And go. <coughs> huh? Championship game, Right? It was 2013. There's Michael Crabtree. There's Richard Sherman. And there is, do you remember what that photo was called? Two words? The tip. That's right. And this paved the way. Had he not done that and the mad skills that Richard Sherman has, had he not done that, you could build a pretty reliable case, I think, that Crabtree catches that ball, which would tie the game. They kick the extra point. Done. Niners go to the Super Bowl instead of the happier story, which was we got to go to the Super Bowl. But I think Richard Sherman and the disciple Peter have similar skill sets. Bold, outspoken, amazing abilities. And yet there are times (coughs) I look at Peter... And I become conflicted. He has has these great moments of of courage demonstrated in his life. But scripture also gives us accounts of significant collapse in his life. And sometimes I step back from that and I wonder, Peter, who are you really? When I think about his courage, and I'll give you a couple of biblical examples of his courage. I think of other synonyms for courage. He's a man of of adventure. He's bold. He's brave. He's courageous. He's committed. He's daring. He's excited. He's spirited. He's full of valor. In the Matthew 14 account, what has just taken place is the feeding of the 5,000. And they've been sent away. Fully satisfied in mind and heart, in stomach. It's beginning to be dark. The 5,000 have been sent away. He says to his disciples, they get in a boat, and they're going across the lake. 
Jesus himself going up on the mountainside for some prayer solitude. And then he comes to them. Let's pick up the action in verse 25. An example of great courage, and we've been singing about it this morning. Shortly before dawn, and how the Romans chunked out their time segments, this fourth watch of the night. So this is between three in the morning and six in the morning. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, what are the next three words? They were terrified. No joke. First of all, who's in a boat on a lake at three in the morning? And somebody comes walking to them? It's a ghost, they said. Absolutely. What kind of mirage are we seeing here? And they cried out in fear, but Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come! Then Peter got out of the boat, which, folks, that's immediately the deep end. I don't know what it was like for you when you first started swimming, but didn't you want to use the steps first and then something about this deep and then have it go down three, three and a half, four, five feet, and then 12, 13 feet? This is like out of the side of the boat immediately into the deep end. Jesus has invited him, verse 30, but when he saw the wind, he he starts walking on the water, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, and he caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And I'm thinking, it was seconds earlier that he had the faith, huge faith, no doubt, and was stepping out walking to you, Jesus. I, he got a, Peter got a little mild rebuke, or I think, gosh, the guy got out of the boat and walked to you. Amazing courage that he demonstrated. When they had climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And so I give Peter a standing ovation for his courage in getting out of the boat. Everybody's afraid. Peter moves beyond his fear. <clears throat> Matthew 16, 13 through 18, another account in Scripture of his courage. Verse 13 reads as follows, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Their, their ministry, they're moving around, they're going from town to town, village to village, place to place. The word about Jesus is getting out. He's with the disciples. What's the chatter out on the sidewalk? What are they saying out on the dusty roads? Verse 14, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What about you? Who do you say I am? Again, small group discussion, boom, Peter, whether, I don't know if he stood up, but he certainly said it with emphasis. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. There was no hesitation, I don't believe. There was confidence in his answer. He had figured out and cracked the code for sure on the identity of Jesus Christ. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So much so that in verses following, Jesus says to Peter, I'm just, I'm calling you, you're no longer Simon, you're Peter, the rock. And on your confession... Based on your correctness 
of my identity being the Christ, the son of the living God, that's what I'm going to build my church on, that testimony, that gospel testimony going forward. Peter nailed it. Courageously. But what about collapse? What about the accounts in Scripture? Little less courage and more collapse, more cave in, more fearful, more, more fearful, more conflicted, more confused, more cowardly. Matthew 16, 21 to 23. And again, Christ has just affirmed Peter. Upon this testimony, I will build the church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So that has just been said to Peter. Now let's look at the following verses, 21 to 33. Excuse me, to 23, 21 to 23. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and the third day be raised to life. 22, Peter took him aside and began to, what's the next word? Rebuke him. I suppose you could say, well, that takes a little bit of courage, doesn't it? Are you comfortable rebuking God? Are there times when we rebuke him, when we don't like what he's doing in our life maybe, and we kick God in the shins, so to speak, metaphorically? I'm sure Peter is thinking, Jesus, you've done amazing things, you've taught amazing things, but you just told me that you're going to suffer and be killed, you're going to die, and then the third day is rise again. This is a bad idea of all the good things you've said and how you roll and what you do, this is not one of your finest sentences. He pulls him aside. He says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, what are the next four words? Wow. Wait a minute, I just called you the rock. Get behind me, Satan. And he's not done. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And the cross is part of the decree of God. It must take place. It will take place. It did, did take place. It has been decreed by God. How do we respond to things in our lives that happen that we're not real big on? We don't really embrace that. We think, really? God, you're, you're allowing this? You brought this into my life or allowed it to come into my life? And how do we know God, not, God might be saying, keep in mind the things of God? 
not just the things of man. And the things of man, we're thinking, well, I didn't sign up for this. And I think that's part of what Peter was saying. Whoa, 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 suffer, kill, raise from the dead? Get behind me. That's not godly thinking, Peter. I think that's intense. How about Luke 22, another example of of collapse, and this would be the most famous one. We're familiar with the denial of Peter if we've been bumping around in church circles very long and three times his denial. And what has taken place in this portion of Luke chapter 22 is Jesus, Jesus, Judas has already made his alliance with the devil and has uh, ratted out Jesus to the religious authorities. He's been arrested and he's beginning to be uh, taken away. Some are lingering longer. From that, in that context of what has just taken place, a fire has started, and some people are sitting around talking about what just took place. So we pick up the action in verse 55. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. 57, but he denied a woman, I, I don't know him. 58, a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. The beginning of verse 59, about an hour later. Now, let me interrupt for a moment and ask this. I wondered about this, and I don't have an answer to my own questions. Two denials have taken place. Jesus had already told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And then you've got this phrase, about an hour later. If you're Peter, how's that last hour been? What is going through your mind? Is it simply continuing to stay by the fire and warm yourself and maybe muse over certain things? Are you attentive? If we're Peter at that point, are we, is there a scoreboard in our head? He said this, two down, one to go. Am I attentive of that at all? Are you aware of that at all when you're sitting there? Are the voices of disappointment and shame and regret and guilt and remorse already starting to chirp and echo between our ears and our head? I don't know what's taking place in that hour, but when this phrase says, about an hour later, it just makes me curious because he's drilling deeper and deeper. He's going down more. The collapse is getting darker. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow is with him, for he is a Galilean. Point being, I hear the accent. I know where you're from. I know who who you've been following. (coughs) 60, Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. So this hour goes by. Jesus has already been arrested. He's being taken wherever or he's already there, but the rooster crows and And Jesus looks at Peter. Intense. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. 
and he went outside and wept bitterly. He's been sitting around this campfire. Intense questions are being asked of him. He flat out denies it one, two, three times. Or whatever it sounded like. And he realizes, no! And he goes outside. And I believe the obvious guilt and shame and remorse and brokenness and darkness and failure and self-loathing and all of those other things, whatever we would else would label down here in those moments of great collapse that all of us have gone through, it's planted and it's watered and it's fertilized and it's sprouted right here for Peter. And it was probably smoldering earlier. And so in Peter's life, we see compelling courage to where I say, I, I would love more of that in my life. And yet we see these epic fails and this seemingly contradictory character episodes that the Bible gives us about Peter then I realize, well, I'm kind of that guy too. One example of, of courage in my life, last August, I quit the two part-time jobs that I had at the time because I started a full-time job. Some friends, I had interviewed with some friends, a husband and wife team took a new job. It was going to be 8.30 to 4.30, whatever the hours were, one job, not two learn this new job. It's an industry I've never been in. Eleven days later, I quit. Family, friends. My wife, Jill, wasn't even in town. I never even called her. I just quit. You might be thinking, wait, you're referencing that as courage? You're stupid. You might be right. For me, I either had to stay in the job hoping I'd grow more into it, or I had to tap out after 11 days, which is what I did, and I was thinking, this isn't even me. This job isn't even me. Again, great people, great opportunity. We've known them since the early 90s. They have the heart of, of, of Jesus. It was amazing, and it's just, I'm done. Courage. I had no job. I'd quit the two jobs. Took the new job, 11 days, see ya. But I also know collapse. Because after I quit that job, I called the school district again, Bellevue School District. Uh, I had just quit being a part-time bus driver. Are you still hiring? They were. So I got that job again. A collapse as a bus driver. To bus drivers, minutes matter. And so when I come to a stoplight and I'm third or fourth person back, eighth person back, whatever, green, go, boom, all right, minutes matter, we got to go. And somebody is on their cell phone and they got their head down and some 50-yard gap takes place. And I'm like, ah, ah, ah. 
which I don't do, (laughs) I want to do, because the the district doesn't want a reputation of, it's probably, there's logic behind it, they don't want a reputation of Bellevue School District bus drivers being filled with road rage, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) So, but attitudinally sometimes, I'm that guy, I have my own collapse, I've had some courage every now and then, I've probably had more collapse in my life than courage. But I look at Peter sometimes and I think, who are you? I look at myself sometimes and I say, quit worrying about Peter. Just figure out your own gig. Here's my main point this morning. As I look at the whole of Peter's life, we've been looking at courage and collapse in gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But we realize that in John 19, Jesus reinstates Peter, puts him back into ministry. And the book of Acts, uh, Peter is a killer uh, leader in the book of Acts in the first several chapters. And then you've got first and second Peter to his credit as well. So I look at the whole of Peter's life and I conclude this. That Peter bounced back from setbacks. That's what I extract from Peter's life. We could extract several things. But I am impressed that he bounced back from collapse in his life. And I say to the disciples at Arbor, those who want to sign up and be that lifelong learner and pupil and follow Christ in this all-encompassing mentorship that we also, men and women, boys and girls, we need to bounce back from setbacks in our life. And if Arbor Church would gain a reputation of being those who were filled with people who bounce back from setbacks, I believe that is a hallmark of discipleship. You know, if you're a director in Hollywood or wherever and you've got that director's clapperboard, right? I didn't even know it was called. I had to do a Google search on what do you call this? It's kind of a rough way to do a search, but so if you're a director, You're sitting in your director's chair, and you've got the actors and actresses and the scene played out before you, and you say, action. And if you, as the director, don't like the scene as it's playing out, what is the one-word response that you use as you're looking upon what's in front of you, and you want to eliminate it? Cut! In our areas of collapse... How many of us? Cut! That was a bad collapse. Cut! And what God did with Peter, God being the director, he used that director's clapperboard and he said to Peter, action! He said, take two. Take 20, take 200, and on and on and on. And a disciple needs to bounce back from setbacks. When we get to the book of Acts, he he preaches an amazing sermon in Acts chapter 2. Peter and John together in Acts chapter 3. They heal a man who has been lame from birth. He's 40 years old, people. He's looking for some spare change, sustenance for his, his uh, challenged life. 
And in chapter 3, Peter and John have said, silver and gold have we none, but what we have we give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And he's healed. Onlookers see that. Peter leverages that into a sermon to tell people more about Christ and preach Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. The local religious authorities are now furious and they put him in jail at nighttime. Picking up the action in Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 3, they seized Peter and John and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. Began to question them. Remember, It was just a few weeks prior to that that he's sitting in a courtyard around a fire and people are beginning to question him. An epic collapse takes place. Here's another setting where hard questions are coming at him from people who want answers. By what power or name did you do this? Verse 8. Then Peter, what are the next five words? Go ahead and say them. Filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a good recovery from collapse. Because again, God the director has said, action. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called into an account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and we're being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you rejected, you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That is bounce back. Compare that to the fire and the smell of burning wood and the cave-in, and then you've got Acts chapter 4, which was preceded by chapter 3 and chapter 2, and God the director has said to Peter again, Action! Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. A disciple bounces back from setbacks. Why do I believe that? Number one. In Luke 22, part of what's in Luke 22 is this Last Supper, this intimate meal of Jesus and his band of brothers. And one of the things Jesus has said to them is this. This is not up on the screen, but Jesus has said, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. 
I believe that a disciple bounces back from setbacks. Here's reason one. Because Jesus is praying for you. Thought about that recently? Wait, what? Jesus is praying for me? Yep. Jesus has your back. Look what it says in Luke 22, 31 to the beginning of verse 32. Again, the setting is the Last Supper, and the disciples are there with Jesus. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. That is you, plural, like from Texas, y'all. Okay? Simon, Satan, Satan wants all 12 of you. He's already got Judas on the hook. And he's coming for the other 11. And remind yourself of the strategy of Satan, according to John 10.10. Satan wants to steal and kill and destroy. So Jesus is saying he wants all of you. Simon, I've prayed for you. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And in that moment, Jesus already knew your faith is, you're going to have a collapse. You're going to have an episode in your life. Cut! I'm praying for you, Simon. I'm praying your faith doesn't fail. Don't pitch the whole thing. Don't go back to fishing. Don't determine... That's okay, that's one of the things we tried to push back up earlier, and that was a collapse. <laughs> Jesus already knows he's going to collapse, but I prayed that your faith doesn't fail. Simon, don't change your mind about how you confidently said you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is praying for you. Number two, a disciple bounces back from setbacks. Why? Number two, because, because beauty comes from brokenness. Beauty comes from brokenness. Luke 22, that middle part of the verse 32 says, when you, and when you have turned back. So he's got that third denial, right? And he goes outside the city and he just, this is just that place of brokenness and weeping and remorse. And Jesus is saying in Luke 22, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that your faith doesn't fail. You're over here. We're over here in our, our, our disappointment about our sin. And Jesus is saying, and when you turn back, and when you turn back, beauty comes from brokenness. This is a place, that's brokenness. That's ugliness. And it needs his touch. It needs his visit with us in that season right there. And when you have turned back, it's part of the bounce back. Psalm 51, verse 17, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant 
heart, O God. So we do that business over here. And scripture's just got, especially in the book of Psalms, so much rawness to it. And when you have, and when you have turned back, Beauty comes from that ash heap over here if we process our brokenness. A disciple bounces back from setbacks. Additionally, number three, because failure is not final. Because failure is not final. Every now and then in my school bus that I'm driving... Something happens this week. It was on the the water temperature gauge. It wouldn't move at all. So I'm cruising around. I notice that. Drive longer. Notice it again. I don't have any coolant spilling. Doesn't smell like something's about ready to incinerate. That's kind of comforting as a parent, isn't it? Knowing that you're, we're not going to. Rode up the bus. Gets taken out of service for a couple of days. Use a different bus pretty soon. My bus is back in service, and I'm driving that which I know. When you have the collapse, and you visit that guilt and shame and brokenness, and you process all that, and you come back, it's time then to get back in service. Luke 22, 32, the back half of 32 simply says this, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. Jesus not only wants you back in service, because at a real pragmatic level, we're useful to him, but I tell you this, he wants us. He wants you. I hope for someone this morning, you may have been comforted with the simple fact of knowing that Jesus is praying for you and he does have your back. Maybe somebody else this morning, maybe the Holy Spirit is tapping on your shoulder and saying, whispering to you, it's time to turn back. It's time to turn back and come back to the embrace of the Father and crawl into his lap and just simply say, Daddy. Maybe that's where some of you are this morning. Perhaps for some, You need to hear the Holy Spirit say, it's time to strengthen your brothers again. Get back into service. And God, the director, using the clapperboard saying, action. I don't know where you are. Join me in prayer as we close.